Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ryan Kolak, and joining me all the way from Wales is the gold standard in ghost hunting, Mr. Stephen Parson. Hello, how are you? Is that French, Stephen Parson? No. Oh, right. Whatever. <laughs> it's your typical, usual uh, mispronunciation of everything. Yeah. So, I mean, all good. I, I've been looking uh, today's show, of course, it was brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 386 Merrimack Street in Mr. Wynn, Massachusetts, and the Galant Messier Family Law Group. Yeah, and uh, I got on MSN and I popped up and I'm looking at these. I believe they're from the UK. They're like these big turrets in the water. Cool. And they are the coolest things. It's like a yeah, it's like a big, uh, you know, a tripod or a four-pod thing that oh, come you, out of the you, water. Are metals. you referring about the, the coastal forts that we have on the yeah, south coast? Yeah, it looks coast. like the coastal forts. Those are so cool, aren't they? Yeah, wow. left over from World War Two. Yeah. Can you I'm buy featured, those? Uh, there are people who have bought them and live in them. Uh, really? one, one of them has actually been declared, or the owner of one of them declared it to be a country and, yeah, I uh, that one. yeah yeah um interestingly uh, they've also featured in uh, doctor who no i did not know that mm-hmm. um an episode a series of one of the episodes or of doctor who uh, the ones with those creatures that come out of the water that have got like a parakeet's head on them i can't remember the name <laughs> of the thing so um yeah that was all set in one of those sea forts yeah um, they're quite common. Uh, they, I mean, there's a whole range of different designs. Uh, there are. Didn't they do? Wait a minute. Didn't they do one on uh, Most Haunted or something? Uh, not that I'm aware of. No, I, for no. some reason I thought they did. No, not that I'm aware of. Um, no. But uh, they certainly. I mean, they they certainly did appear in a Doctor Who. Um, Hmm. series. Uh, I think it was Tom Baker. Uh, oh, no, sorry, it, sorry, it was Pertwee. It was John Pertwee. Oh, um, I can't remember the name of the damn creatures now, but they had parakeets' heads and, like, weird... Uh, anyway, they came out of the water. Um, but there are lots of different designs. I mean, they date back to this idea of offshore fortifications, dates back to uh, well, beyond the Napoleonic era, there were a number of earlier designs uh, off the Pembrokeshire coast here in West Wales uh, that are called Martello Towers. Uh, How many are there? Do you know? Uh, around the UK, there's there's probably well into the double figures. I mean, we've got three, four here in Pembrokeshire. There's a whole raft of them off the south coast. Can, the ones can you that go to them? Uh, you can visit some of them. Yeah. Um, you can certainly, you can actually rent some of them uh, to stay on. Uh, some of them have been converted down the years unsuccessfully, though, uh, as hotels mm-hmm. and uh, attractions. The ones you're referring to, the the, the metal constructions, were actually World right. War World War One constructions, I think, originally, and um, were later reused in World War Two. 
Uh, and then there were also further additions made to them in World War Two that were uh, rebuilt. Where the other ones were added in World War Two. I think the original ones date back to World War One. But the whole notion of these coastal forts in the water, protecting the coastline, um, really. I mean, Henry VIII built a number of uh, on-land fortifications or on yeah. small islands, uh, notably in Edinburgh, uh, protecting the Firth of Forth. Yeah, that's um, been done through the centuries, though. Yeah, um, there's a cement battleship in the Philippines. Yeah. Um, these are just what you're what you're describing is just the the last incarnation of them before the idea became redundant. Mm. Um, you know, since World War Two, we've had no further requirements. Not just due to the fact that uh, we haven't had a war, but although we might with Europe any day soon, but also um, technology's changed. You know, the, this idea of a naval flotilla attacking Britain. Um, it's, you know, it's, that's not happening anymore, is it? They wouldn't use those methods anymore, so we don't need to have coastal batteries that defend from, you know, sh- uh, against shipborne attack. Yeah, which is a great could, shame. But oh, I mean, a lot could of prevent, you know, invasion as far as shipborne invasion. Well, if, could. well, if the Europeans try, um, I'm sure they can be reactivated. And, the, and of yeah. course, the British lost territory in in World War Two to the Germans in the Channel, and they were able to take over the islands and uh, fortify them. Well, it was it was considered to be an impossible uh, situation to defend them because uh, uh, those islands, the Channel Islands, are only fifteen or so miles off the French coast and considerable distance further away from the English or the British, the English South Coast. And to, uh, although we had a garrison on them, uh, the garrisons were withdrawn, and it was felt that uh, it was it was decided by the government of the day that it would be better for the population rather than fight a full-pitched battle over them uh, to withdraw the the militia Mm. and notify the Germans that that was the case and that there would be no opposition and therefore there would be no need to attack the island. However, the Germans somehow didn't get the memorandum and then bombed the island several times before... Well, you didn't speak German, that was the problem. Well, possibly. Um... But thereafter, uh, and then of course, at the end of uh, towards the end of World War Two, the uh, the invasion on D-Day bypassed the Channel Islands, and so although large portions of mainland France had been liberated, it was it was several months later before the Channel Islands uh, were liberated, uh, and they were quite peacefully liberated by a um, a small boat from the Royal Navy. And a British policeman uh, arriving to take take charge of the islands once again. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it still rankles the, the this idea of, on the Channel Islands, particularly. It still rankles amongst uh, the population that um, some people consider some of them consider them abandoned. There were also the inevitable uh, accusations of collaboration. Uh, accusations were also levelled against the police force because. Um, Almost every member of the police uh, on the island maintained their, their positions and maintained law and order, but they were, of course, then under German jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and although they were maintaining law and order, which is what they were supposed to do, uh, and what they were in, in, in basically instructed and ordered to do, um, there were still, nonetheless, accusations of collaboration with the Germans. 
So, right. yeah. And of course, uh, in, in relation to ghost hunting, it's it's left a quite a legacy, particularly on the island of Guernsey in Jersey, where the Germans built a number of very large fortifications uh, using slave labour, uh, whom they treated horrendously. No, uh, really. Yeah, uh, that's one thing the Germans are very good at: the ruthless efficiency. The emphasis usually on ruthless. The um, and of course that left a legacy of monuments and constructions, which have become a veritable playground for the ghost hunting community. Yeah. The, so, are there tales of ghosts on these islands? Oh, gosh, yeah. If you look at the Channel Islands, Guernsey and Jersey, uh, the German hospital, uh, there's a large German hospital, there were some of the other fortifications, uh, have attracted ghost hunters for, oh, at least the, the, the past several decades, um, including our, our, our friend, uh, Dr. Kieran O'Keefe, who's been there a number of times. Really? Um, conducting public investigations on the, um, on the islands. It's quite a popular ghost hunting location uh, because I, it gives people the opportunity to explore the the often very lurid tales that have now become associated with these uh, fortifications and military hospitals and other military establishments that the Germans left behind or repurposed whilst the islands were occupied. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, it's it's always intriguing, I, especially the ports. The not the islands, not so much as uh, the ports. Always intrigue me. Where would you like to uh, go there and do an investigation? And, and uh, you know, and over an extensive period of time, I I think it would be quite intriguing. Um, I I only know of a hand, relative handful. There's one in Pembrokeshire. In fact, it was up for sale quite recently. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think it was being offered for uh, the, the the basic the base price was 150,000 pounds um, for what's called stack rock. Now, but stack rock is older um, in that it's a stone construction on top of a small rock outcrop. Um, it does date back to the Napoleonic era, but it was in use right up to and including world, uh, to the end of World War Two as a coastal defence fortification. It then, down the years, it's been uh, repurposed several times. There was a failed attempt to turn it into a tourist destination and a hotel, um, along with the the fort on the opposite side of the the, uh, the haven. Really. Um, but the currently Stack Rock is 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 up for sale. Um, I don't think anybody's bought it, but it's regularly up for sale. And there are so many restrictions on its use and what you can do, plus oh. reaching it because it's it's inside a protected area for a giant um, liquid natural gas uh, refinery. Oh, wonderful! Um, and it's regularly been visited when when they were building the uh, LNG terminal. That we had a lot of the environmental campaigners who basically uh, got onto Stack Rock and hauled their banners and occupied um, the fort, <laughs> <laughs> which of course you know uh, blocked construction and blocked the sea, uh, blocked the the the, the, um, the tankers, the big gas tankers, from coming in. Um, How could they know. block them? It's just on a stupid island. Well. Well, although they weren't physically blocking the waterway, um, their their presence was 
considered to be a security obstruction. Oh, I get it. So um, they they were eventually evicted, or I think they were actually just starved out. <laughs> That'll do it too. <laughs> because there's no there's no uh, sort of uh, these islands uh, these forts don't have any running water or uh, uh, amenities like electricity. Uh, they, they were always supplied by generators and had their own water tanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them had rainwater collection systems. Yeah, as well, I was going to say they must have that because I know the lighthouses, offshore yeah. lighthouses, have uh, water yeah. rain collection systems. But I mean, you know, those systems were designed and were functional, you know, decades ago and haven't been maintained. And so these guys, you know, once they ran out of um, the organically produced drinks and genetically modified snacks they soon came out <laughs> like so, all, good, like all yeah. good peace protesters <laughs> once the 21st century abandons them and they have to use you know, technology again they all uh, they all come they all come crying back oh well uh, I, I, I saw a cartoon in the paper about area 51 and that reminded me of the area 51 uh, crash and I wondered what happened to it because you never really heard a lot. And so I did some research on it, and basically uh, nobody went there. (laughs) That's the killer part. Oh, the raid? Yeah, the the Area 51 raid. They ended up with three three festivals, one festival in in Las Vegas, one in Hyatt, and one in Rachel. But nobody went to Area 51 except a couple of tourists. Well, they they did. Um, there was a video of it um, that I watched only very recently, and uh, there was a huge festival in Rachel. It was very well attended, right. and what they were Actually, doing it was, was not well attended. Well, it was. Well, I they were worried for, about it. There was going to be so many people, but it turned out far less than there was. Well, I mean, there were far less than than had clicked the like on Facebook, but that's not unusual. But nonetheless, I mean, there were several thousand people in Rachel, and it was you know the organisers had actually done a really good job. They they there was lots of stalls, there was lots of catering, um, there was there was excellent provision of. Uh, toilet facilities and such. In fact, they overestimated the amount of toilets, but nonetheless. But what was really interesting is uh, they were allowing people free reign up and down um, what's called the Grim Lake Road, up to the gates of Area 51. Um, And when they got to the gates, there was obviously uh, one or two uh, sheriffs and sheriff deputies. Um, But they, the sheriff, they were all being ex- extremely nice. Uh, yeah. They were being quite welcoming to these people. Except for um, the two that went here two weeks before. Uh, yeah, well, except, you know, obviously if people crossed the line, um, they were going to get themselves arrested. Right. But but it was very, very good-natured. It was all very good-humoured. Uh, there was lots yeah, of... Yeah, so it totally failed. Uh, well, it did in terms of its mission statement, but... It, apparently, the event was so considered to be so successful um, that they've actually organised it for next year as well because so many people, people. who went said it was such a fantastic experience. Mm-hmm. This sort of coming together weekend, a big festival, um, and then you know 
drive up to the gate. So, there's a little description by the reporter that went there. Dozens of young, good-looking people, off in costume, were running around filming each other with semi-professional video rigs, and they were YouTubing and Instagramming far more than aspiring stars. <laughs> uh, joining them was a ragged army of hundreds of stoners, UFO buffs, punk bands, rubberneckers, European tourists, and people with too much time on their hands. <laughs> Well, but well, that kind of fits the video I saw. But you know, when they were interviewing the people, the people mm. seemed to be having a generally good. The whole thing was yeah. Very, it wasn't. That's the whole purpose. It wasn't having a good time. I mean, anybody could have a festival. Well, they, I mean, this whole thing it was a total failure. They were supposed to storm and find out what was really going on at Fifty One. They the turned pansy and, and did nothing. Well, the whole thing was a spoof. I mean, the, the guy who put the original post onto Facebook, which was very tongue-in-cheek, said to himself, he said, you know, this thing was just him making um, a light-hearted post onto, onto social media. But the thing took off and flew. And it, it did. And it, people turned it into something that was re- actually really quite positive. You know, it could have, it could have become uh, confrontational and a battle. Uh, but it, what it turned into was a was a big happy three day event where lots of people, you know, seemingly had a very good time. Now, you know, in in today's climate, that's not necessarily a bad thing, and we all like a good festival and a good party. And um, those that went said that they were definitely, and the organisers have said that they were definitely going to do it again next year. Um, as, as you know, so Budweiser actually spuffles, uh, uh, sponsored the one in, in Nevada. I mean, in uh, uh, Las Vegas. Uh, but there, like, there were three of them, so it wasn't like, you know, no, it, I, it really was just they were there to make money. It was the good old American thing. Let's take something and turn it into making money. And that's basically what it was. It's basically I like know. ghost hunting. You know, let's take ghost hunting and turn it into making money. That's oh, what yeah. Americans yeah. do. Uh, yeah, not just Americans, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but in terms of in terms of that Area Fifty One thing, that raid on Area Fifty One, I thought it was all very good fun and uh, really could, would quite like to have been there. Mm-hmm. Good. But there we are. I but thought it was just yeah. a total failure. Only because there wasn't twenty thousand people crashing through the gates of Area Fifty One, which and, was the whole purpose of the thing. Well, the thing the thing is though. It was always doomed to fail, wasn't it? Because even if 20,000 people had suddenly turned up at the gates of Area 51 and just kept on walking like they did in Men in Black, where they just drove through gates. Well, you know what would have happened, don't you? Because, I mean, how many how many weeks, months notice had they given to Area 51? Yeah. You don't you don't think that anything, you know, if they'd appeared on the horizon, I mean, it's a 20-mile walk to Area 51 from the road. Mm-hmm. If... if <laughs> By the time they got, and by the time you go through the perimeter, it's another ten or fifteen miles. Mm. By the time they'd reached the base, there wouldn't have been anything left to see. They would have never made it to the base because they well, would have they would have tear gassed them, they would have water cannoned them, they would have rubber bulleted them, maybe even shot them. Who the hell knows? But well, the only, they would have never reached. Let's it. be honest; you only have to shoot one. That's true. The rest of them are all going to t- then turn around, aren't they, and mm. walk away? 
But if you're going to give somebody that much notice of, hey, we're going to come and storm your house next week, you, any sensible and wise person would take, you know, adequate precautions. But what, what, what I really admired about it was the attitude of the guards and the security services, even the supposed, you know, uh, arch enemies of the Area 51 Brigade, the, the camo dudes, even they were being cooperative, almost playful with, uh, you know, with the participants, with the attendees. Actually, you know, showing a human face and a human side and engaging with people, albeit for one day only. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it, it did. Well, I, you know, the way you portray it, it makes it look like, oh, the guards were out there dancing with them. Well, that was not true. It wasn't true. No, they true weren't at all. dancing with them, but they were no. they were engaging with them, um, and they were, you know, communicative. They were open. That's because um, the guards were not part of the Area Fifty One security forces. They were special, uh, different. Uh, what's the word? Uh, different. Well, um, in the main, in the main, they were mostly sheriffs and sheriff deputies. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, from the you know the county, but there were actually some of the um, Area Fifty One security forces. You know the uh, the the called the camo dudes in their right. white pickup trucks. They were also um, engaging, albeit in a much more sort of hands-off way. That you know, they weren't sort of up front and let's all all huggy huggy with each other. Well, that's what you're trying to portray, and I don't, I totally no 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 no. I was what I was saying is they were being fun, you know, in their they own way. The shit out of them is what you're basically saying. Well, normally, normally, when you watch these these camo dudes on video, um, mm-hmm. they they normally are intimidating and um, right. uh, they set out to uh, sort of pursue and hector and drive away any any yeah, it's you know, a big difference between, you know chasing a couple of people than chasing a huge crowd. So well, you have, to have some I mean, restraint. Yeah, but what they were doing on this occasion is that they were. Being, they were showing a human face and engaging with people. They, okay. In fact, in fact, in several instances, these these camo dudes who are notoriously camera shy um, and elusive, you know, it's very very difficult for people to actually capture them on video because they. they I, in fact, people have gone as far as to say that if they get caught on camera, they they can get fired from their job uh, because they are all civilian contractors. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, there were several uh, instances where these people were coming out and actually engaging with um, the revelers. Yeah, this was a part time as they hired for the. <laughs> well, you know, it's easy. I mean, you might be being cynical, but it, I'm very it, cynical because I, I, it, like I said, I believe it was a total failure in the way you portrayed it. I think I, like... th- I actually think it was a brilliant PR coup because what they ended up doing was diffusing the entire situation because it could have gone uh, downhill and sour very quickly if the security oh, service could have gone great. We could have thinned out the herd. <laughs> it, well, you, you might say that, but you know it. It, it could have gone in, in a completely different direction very, very quickly. It could have turned hostile. It could have turned nasty with mass arrests and you know, lots true. of bad PR. But what they did but, is they... But turned... thing, yeah, but they never really did anything. I mean, what did they well, really do to venture well, being arrested in mass league? Nothing, really. They went up to the gate. Well, well, of course, absolutely nothing. However, what they did do was generate a huge amount of tourist revenue for a, quite a poor area of Nevada. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and once I, again, I, Area 51 really cares about that. Area 51 no. doesn't, but the population of Rachel and Alamo and all the little towns around there, um, yeah. Yeah, they all benefited. You know, you are, you are in a capitalist society. Yes, we are. So, you know, you can hardly complain when somebody turns it into a money-making venture. Fair enough. Well, let us go with I that. Thought it, I thought it was generally, you know, like... My I know, you've made your point, and I've made there. mine. I wasn't yep. there. Neither um, was I. But, you know, having watched the video, I thought, that looks like a really good weekend out. Mm-hmm. Almost as much fun as Spirit Quest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Except we actually learned something like Spirit Quest. Well, we haven't learned what the... T- have you fixed the title for Spirit Quest next year yet? No, it's absolutely c- correct. Well, you changed it once. No. Yes, you did. Yeah, the original one, yes, it was uh, something, um, yeah. But 2020, means clear, clear vision, oh, so... Yeah, 2020. Uh, 2020's clear vision, so oh. lifting the veil. There we are. Fair so you can see better and... I still, I still, I'm still uh, completely against calling 2021 the e- putting an X in it. Why would I put X in it? Well, that's what you're talking about. So I am. You, you did discuss the idea of when Marla was on the, uh, recently um, mm. about putting an X somewhere in the tenth spirit quest. Who knows if there is a tenth spirit quest? Well, you can say you can't do it because it's spirit quest, not an iPhone. Could and be. anyway, we did the X one this year. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. Anyway. You call it the, retail, the triumphant return. Yeah, so how was oh, your... There you go. Little... Like Lord of the Rings, you call it the return of the king. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> Anyways, uh, how was your Boy Scout uh, ghost hunting? Did they all... Uh, the ghost hunt itself, the, out, the, uh, the ghost hunt, which was supposed to... Because the scout hall is an old uh, chapel. Yep. Um, so it's surrounded by its own uh, graveyard, which we were which we were going to convert into a haunted graveyard and do an outside ghost hunt. However, the weather they allowed didn't... to do that to the graveyards, isn't that isn't that uh, no, right. Oh, I I think it is. What about yeah. the the poor people that died there? That you're making light of their deaths. We we asked we asked and none of them raised any complaints. Oh. Um, so yeah, we, we, we went out there with ghost with the uh, with the ghost box the day before, and we asked everybody um, if you know, but nobody complained. There was no voices raised in complaint. However, um, the gods were against us because um, on the day um, we had five inches of rain. Well, there you go. So it had to be moved to, uh, or that element of it uh, had to be. Postponed. Oh, that's annoying. And you had to have a disco and karaoke instead. Why don't you just investigate the, the scout hall? Um, just getting 40, 40 kids to do anything is difficult. Mm. <laughs> but they had a good time. Mm. Anyways, not only is the weather against us, the time is against us right now because we are coming up to the break, so we're going to have to take a break. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles, the international edition with Steve Parsons and Ron Kolick right here on Tojinet and Pararex Radio, brought to you by Circles of Wisdom 386, Merrimack Street in Methuen, Massachusetts, and also the... Where, I actually have that stupid card around here somewhere that I, well, whatever. The Gallant Messier Family Law Group. I'd like to get High Street in North Andover, Massachusetts. 
And anyway, so uh, we'll be right back after the uh, following uh, messages, I guess. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. Mysterious and spooky, they all talk ugly gooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange, deranged, unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew, it's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parrax family. Two Ghost Chronicles International with New England's very own Van Helsing and here in the UK just a ghost hunter. Ben? Okay. That was it. So I couldn't sit through your intro without saying something. <laughs> and I did. So That's you can no longer you can no longer say that. Alright, more than future I can say you very rarely can sit through. Yeah, on one that. occasion if you sat you- through. You can say that, but that's... that's... Yeah. yeah, so the rest of the party went brilliantly well. Um, we did the traditional pumpkin carving and ducking for apples and uh, face painting and all of the Halloween things that kids love to do. Um, so that was all good fun. Yeah, but the weather uh, did tend to trash the plans. It also wrecked the ghost hunt, the fundraising ghost hunt on Saturday night. Oh, uh, no. Because the, the amount of rain flooded a lot of the roads uh, because the leaves are falling from the trees that uh, backed up all the drains. And so so uh, the venue um, got in touch and said, we think we need to postpone this. Oh, my gosh. So we had to uh, postpone. We had a quiet weekend. Well, it wasn't planned to be a quiet weekend, but ultimately uh, Friday was quite noisy, but... Uh, but Saturday was literally a washout. <laughs> it wasn't that bad here. So Saturday night, I actually got to do a cool, really cool event, which was the uh, Coolidge Corner Theater, and it was a fifty people, ghost, wasn't it? Four hundred fifty people ghost fest, uh, a, a horror marathon. Excuse me, from midnight to. 12 noon the next day Ooh. started off with a costume contest was excellent excellent well i know how much you americans love dressing up it was a riot i mean they were great there was my favorite well there was a couple of good but there was one 
that they they dressed up like uh, Poltergeist the movie. They had a one of them was a TV set, and the other one who was a guy <laughs> who was a guy was dressed up as a uh, uh, little girl, and she sat in front of the TV, and the guy could put his hands and stuff through the, the made the TV. You know, with everything was really really good. They had Uncle Festa there from the Adams family lighting up light bulbs in his mouth looked just like him. All the horror creatures were there from all the different ones. And, uh, yeah, it was made, they had uh, the three witches from the Wizard of Oz with the house with the witch underneath the house, which <laughs> was actually a real person. So that was really, really cool. That was really great. Uh, they had that, and then after that was over, they ran Poltergeist, the first movie, and then we got to go on and do our spiel. And Luckily, I got home at 4.30 in the morning, so there you go. And what time did you go on? Uh, probably about three. It was only oh. a half hour presentation. Oh my god. I don't mm. when was the last time you stayed up that late? All through the night. I've done it a couple of times. Yeah, not recently. <laughs> that's, that's that's almost inhuman. When I do the, the ghost hunting tours for the lighthouse I usually don't get home and then bed until uh two o'clock anyway, so um, those days are over. Yeah. I'm anyway. too old. I'm too old. Anyway, ghosts come out by day as well. I'm only interested in... In fact, I'm changing my resume now. I'm only going to investigate ghosts that come out before before 8 o'clock at night. Mm. Good idea. Yeah, you know, That's the funny part about it. Is, is my that brain keeps really... writing checks that my body can't cash anymore. How many, how many people uh, you know, do these ghost hunts and, and they never really do the, uh, ghost investigations? They really never go when the ghost is really seen. They always go when it, at night. No matter well, what, I, it's always at night. No matter, if it's seen at noon, you're going to be there at night. Well, it's I like, understand the practical reasons because sometimes you just can't physically get there uh, or get access to a place during the day because you know if it's a public venue, it might be open or if it's a workplace. Um, and we do, I mean, there is that historical kind of precedent. You know, if you go back through all of the early um psychical researchers um, you know they always spent the night in the haunted bedroom didn't they They always, and the ghost always appeared at the stroke of midnight mm-hmm. I mean right the way back to Athenodorus when Mr. Rattley uh, chain ghost didn't appear until after dark yeah so cool so I think people have got this historical notion and idea that ghosts only appear in the dead of night. In fact, you know, social media uh, re-emphasizing that. There was a post on just before we came on air that said uh, the veil is thinnest between three and four thirty o'clock in the morning, morning yes. and blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, or the witching hour, blah blah blah. Yeah. Uh, in actual fact, uh, if you look at the. Uh, documentary evidence there the there are several times um where you are more likely or the the number of reports are most likely to occur and surprisingly it's not midnight it's uh, or even you know right in the middle of the day surprisingly around dawn and dusk are the two most likely times uh when people report stuff you know historically uh, and I mean, and that's only relatively anecdotal because nobody has ever gone through every case report and looked at all of the times of all of the sightings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for those sightings that were examined, I think the the, the person looked at several hundred cases. You uh, know, the I, I, I you were talking about Anadurus or whatever the hell his name is, and th- yeah. that always intrigued me because 
in that one there, the, the ghost had chains and rattled. When they dug it up, they supposedly found the chains as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have so many other reports of, you know, in literature of ghosts with chains. Do you know where that came from? Uh, I, I actually think it's probably a Thanodorus. You think that, so? That's, that story. I mean, you like, you know, Christmas carols and they were the ghosts with the chains and that one too. Well, Dickens Dickens was obviously would have been aware of of Pliny and Pliny's accounts. And if you look at the Dick, the Dickensian uh, uh, description of the ghost and the way it appears, it's actually almost a carbon copy of the Pliny account of Athenodorus' uh, experience, except for the uh, added lines about there's more of grave than you're more of gravy than grave and uh, you're a little piece of cheese but the two accounts when placed side by side the actual description of the apparition are remarkably similar um dickens of course was a social reformer and campaigner and used the change as an allegory for um how you how you are in life then you know you you forge every link with every uh, bad deed that you do or ill ill action that you do. Uh, So, you know, as a great social reformer and campaigner against poverty and against um, inequality, you know, he used the chain, as as I say, as an allegory for um, how we treat other people. Mm -hmm. But just a straightforward literary comparison between the Pliny account of Athenodorus, which took place in first century Athens, and for those that aren't aware of it, basically there was a a house in Athens uh, which was reputedly so haunted that nobody would remain in it, and Athenodorus, who was a scholar, uh, heard of this, it intrigued him, so he moved. He, he rented it and he moved in, and he waited to see what would happen, and then one night, while he was writing, um, the apparition appeared uh, down the corridor towards him, rattling its chains and moaning loudly. And from the, uh, eventually, um, because initially Athenodorus did, did what any sensible and uh, open-minded investigator would do, he ignored it, because he was aware that obviously it might have been a hallucination. Uh, but it persisted, it continued to stand there and rattle its chains and moaning, and eventually he put down his quill and he paid it some attention, and it beckoned him out into the courtyard and pointed mournfully in, at the ground. And uh, Athenodorus marked the spot, and the next day had his servants, because obviously it was beneath him to pick up a spade. But then the servant dug a hole and found the, the skeleton of a man, wrapped in chains, bound in chains. Uh, The skeleton was exhumed and given a proper burial in holy ground, and the ghost was laid. Now, that's very similar to uh, the apparition of this moaning, shrouded figure dragging uh, its uh, wrapped in chains and dragging the chains behind it and moaning and rattling chains is, is... straight out of Dickens, except it isn't. It's 2,000 years before Dickens. Um, but, it, you know, the, the two of them side by side, it, it's it's very, very similar. And it's obvious where Dickens got his account from it, and other authors too. Um, you know, Dickens was highly influential. The Dickensian uh, or the Victorian Christmas stories that Dickens wrote and the... Um, 
have have passed into i mean you know we've all seen the christmas carol it's one of the most widely read books it's one of the most widely viewed holiday films it's been remade in almost every format and so it's a story that's that's seeped inever inevitably and inexorably into our culture and it does affect um how we perceive ghosts in fact um I would say that it's probably one of the most influential, or Dickens was one of the most uh, influential people in how we perceive ghosts. Is that where you get the uh, Christmas ghost stories from? Um, Dickens wrote an, uh, for, um, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the magazine, the newspaper that he edited, uh, he wrote an annual Christmas ghost story. Um, and one of those was A Christmas Carol. There were others. There was The Haunted Man and um, others. There, there, there was one set at, uh, I think it's called The Railway Man. It was remade into a, a short BBC programme called The Railway Man. And it became a tradition of, there always was a tradition of telling ghost stories uh, at Christmas time. Now, that tradition long predates Dickens. It goes right the way back um, is probably lost in the mist of time and has been attributed to the uh, early sort of Celtic settlers, you know, who at midwinter would gather around the fire and celebrate the, the passing of one year to the next and tell sort of long stories and ghost stories, spirit stories about their ancestors. Mm. Now, that, that morphed through, uh, there were ghost stories told at Christmas time through the 16th and 17th centuries. Dickens merely carried on that tradition. Um, and in fact that tradition carried right on uh, up until almost the present day because growing up as a child one of the highlights of Christmas uh, it was always on Christmas Eve or on Boxing Day Eve mm -hmm. uh, which is the day following Christmas Day here in the UK we celebrate it as Boxing Day um, the BBC always had um, a Christmas ghost story which was normally a half hour programme and that was, some, that was one of the highlights of Christmas, was the BBC's Christmas ghost story, when all of the family would gather round and watch this um, programme. Yeah, I mean... I mean they, they've restarted it in recent years. But it, have it, they really? Yeah, the last few years. I mean, what they've been doing is repeating often um, the earlier broadcasts that people remember so well from the the 1970s and 1980s cool. but they have remade some of them as well and updated them and made fresh ones uh, so they're, they're sort of like 30 minute versions of the teller of curious tales which of course is another version because we don't right. just tell ghost stories at christmas time but there is a tradition um in western culture uh, that around you know sort of midwinter and christmas has replaced all of the midwinter festivals uh, in Christian countries, that we tell we tell ghost stories at that time of year. There's there's uh, a rumor going around that the, the uh, teller of curious tales has passed away. I believe he may have done. Um, yeah, because nobody can hear from him anymore. We yeah. don't know what's going on. No. Um, well, you know, he's now doing other things. He's he's busy being a social butterfly. I understand. He has his own social media page now, and um, he's moved on. Hmm. Moved. Well, like he may have moved on. We may claims, have to find find the claims, new teller of curious tales. Well, you know, there are claims of him being busy, but I think he's he always seems to find time to be on social media. Mm. 
So true. So um, that hardly really holds water, that excuse. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I'm too busy, but I'm never too busy to, to tweet. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, it's it. All this this ghost stuff, and if we go back in history about the story, I mean, to me, it was always intriguing. Is even the Witch of Endor, of course, when they uh, Samuel goes to the Witch of Endor and raises up uh, uh, what's his name, Saul, uh, and uh, you know, and he's actually annoyed. Uh, that he's been bugged. He said, why the heck are you calling me here? <laughs> but, but the interesting thing about it is that they just described as uh, still wearing his shawl, uh, mm-hmm. his death shawl, which, you know, is kind of like is these pictures, the classic pictures of uh, ghosts, which is, you know, a sheet over somebody. <laughs> so it's, it's kind well, of funny. Actually, that, that actually dates to um, around about the 15th, 15th uh, and 16th centuries and, and, and gives rise to the classic ghost. Because when they when they wrap the body in a shawl, and there was a, actually a law passed in, in, in England, um, I think under Queen Elizabeth I, because the they were um, they needed to increase the use of wool, and so a law was passed forbidding people to be buried in linen shawls or shrouds. And that the shrouds had to be made of wool, um, but nonetheless, um, the actual shape of the shroud, particularly with the top knot, because the body was wrapped like a rather like a Christmas right, right sort of sausage, and then a knot was tied at the top end of it, uh, gives rise to the classic shape of the ghost, and that's why the ghosts, you know, even the Ghostbuster ghost has this sort of swirly bit sticking out the top of its head mm-hmm. um, and actual fact uh, the this this idea um, has been has been hijacked by by other uh, cultures and other societies and organizations including most notably the Klu Klux Klan uh, the KKK uniform is is actually representative of a ghost and was designed because it would scare people Right. This idea of this all white and then this pointy weird hat that they were this wizard's type hat and uh, face mask was actually to emulate the uh, ghosts and spirits and right. was designed to be a frightening facade for those that they would want to intimidate and torment and 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 torture. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been represented right up to the modern day. We've got the Ghostbuster logo, of course, famously. We've got uh, Casper. In fact, in every representation of the go- of a ghost, uh, when we see it, you know, represented, we, we recognise that classic shape of the top knot, which actually, in fact, is more representative of a body in a shroud. Yeah, but in Cas- Casper, they actually have several designs of the ghost. The ghost of Casper is more round-headed versus the, it does change, the, the, the ones that tor- torment them who are all pointed-headed, mm-hmm. almost like the Ku Klux Klan, to be quite frank. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you, I mean, the, but we, what was, the point I was making is this, this classic ghost that we have, that we all recognize immediately whenever, you know, right down to the Pac-Man ghost, which yeah. is a yeah, you know, they exactly. all have this this rep- which actually is a representation of a body, an enshrouded body. 
sense. Most often with the top knots, there are variations mm. that don't have it, but it's become a universally recognised symbol for a ghost um, or an enshrouded body. Yeah. Uh, there we are. That's, uh, you know, that form follows fashion or fashion follows form and the stories oh, the are right? <laughs> intertwined. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, the idea of uh, ghosts and ghost investigations and ghost stories and ghost stories have been around for, you know, forever. People used to talk about ancestors and the spirits and the Native Americans have got lots of stories about ancestors and communicating with the ancestors. Mm-hmm. You've got, the, as you said before, you've got the Witch of Endor in the Bible and there are many, many, many others. Um, I mean, Daniel Defoe. In, in 1725, published a really uh, long-winded, well, the title of it, I think, runs to 35 words, which is an exposition on apparitions and and ghosts and, and the investigation and study thereof of these things. Um, and actually, he comes out really quite sceptical of the whole thing and warns people not to be um, too my, believing that, that these things, you know, are are uh, not all normal. Uh, I'll give you the title, actually. It's called The Secrets of the Invisible World Disclosed, or A Universal History of Apparitions, Sacred and Profane, Under All Denominations, Whether Angelical, Diabolical, or Human (laughs) Souls Departed. I haven't finished yet. With a great variety of surprising and diverting examples never published before, also showing how we may distinguish between the apparitions of good and evil spirits and how we ought to behave to them. That's the title of the book. I have no comment on that whatsoever. He wrote that in 1725, blessing. Have you read it? I, I'm just flipping. I have read it, actually. I'm holding an original 1725 copy of it in my hand. Why does that not surprise me? Um, well, there we are. Yeah. Mm. Of course, leather bound in... Well, I was jokingly saying human skin, but it's not. Yeah, probably with the... Yeah, I was just going to say that. Oh, talking of leather bound, I got a really good uh, book bargain at um, TJ Maxx, which is the UK equivalent of TK Maxx, or TJ Maxx. Yeah, you get the idea. Yeah. Um, le- it was the leather-bound part that got me because um, this was a uh, leather-bound book, um, which is entitled. Because I'll just reach down and grab it. The inventions, researches, and writings of Nikola Tesla. Oh, that's pretty cool. And it runs to about 600 pages. Of, um, I thought you were going to say 600 pounds. It's like, oh, No, no, crap. no, 600 pages of all facsimiles of all of these research papers and documents and um, plans. And um, Do you know what? The only thing that's missing from it, for good reason, are his plans for the Tesla Spirit Radio. Oh, uh, that is they are absent, but conspiracy theorists would no doubt have his believe that the FBI removed them after he died. Right, that is one of the theories that they went into his office and stole well, a lot of his bed. I mean, yeah. It's not a theory, I mean, they actually, and they said themselves that they did, and to this day nobody quite knows what they were doing and what they did take away. Um, but I'm sure that the US government or the FBI, whoever sent them, um, wasn't really... There's probably Edison's men. 
almost certainly Edison would have been behind it somewhere. Um, but I'm fairly sure that they weren't just after the plans of the Spirit Radio. Oh, we don't want anybody listening, talking to the dead people. Let's go and steal Tesla's yeah, plan. It must plan. have been because they were talking to the Martians, not the dead people. Well, whoever he was talking to. Um, of he, course, believed, he, he believed he was talking to Martians. Uh, he speculated on it, that's for certain. Yes, yes. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say he believed it. He was, okay. he was, I would he say was he was. definitely, no, he, I would say he was definitely open to it. And in, in several of his interviews. And He's his been quoted as saying it. Yeah. Uh, saying it and doing it are two different things. Edison also, Edison also, who has been blamed for um, or attributed with inventing a spirit communication radio uh, wrongly. Uh, Edison said, you know, that if spirits could communicate, then the radio was surely a a device that would make could make that a possibility. Tesla went further than Edison, a lot further than Edison. Tesla was really quite open-minded to the possibility of extraterrestrial communication and also extra-dimensional or spirit communication uh, using um, the techniques developed that he mm-hmm. developed from. Uh, radio, because he was he was he was interested in radio. He invented radio control devices, uh, rather like Hammond down at Hammond uh, Castle down in Gloucester. Um, yeah, Hammond holds the second uh, number of patents to Edison in the United States. And te- and like, like well, like Hammond, who was uh, instrumental in developing radio control devices, he was slightly behind Tesla. Because Tesla also worked on radio control guidance devices and is celebrated on a coin issued by Serbia that shows a small radio control. Of course control. they would. He was, he was uh, Serbian. Serbian. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of their coins actually shows a small radio control, radio guided boat uh, that's, that's actually in the book uh, that Tesla invented and patented and demonstrated working um, on a New York uh, water, uh, lake. Uh, which was predates Hammond. So um, apparently we've got no pizza from the dead tonight. Hmm. Anyway, hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. You're listening to... Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> pizza boy's been uh, been abducted. No, no, he's just delayed. No. Anyway. <laughs> that's what I thought. Yeah, can't fool Ron. Anyway... Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, yeah, I got a big uh, event myself coming up this uh, Friday Bigger night. Bigger than four hundred and fifty people. Uh, fifty, just fifty. So, which is going to be difficult because it's a small little place. It's an old meeting house. Was a slave quarters. Was oh, a bunch of masons. Oh, it was a bunch of places. Uh, church. Uh, Portsmouth, by any chance? Yes, in Portsmouth, right, and. Uh, doing it with Roxy's Wicker, so uh, sold out in two weeks. So excited about this! Um, it will be Friday night. Uh, we will have another one, I guess. Roxy wants to do another one because that one did sold out so quickly. So uh, next year, if you didn't get the chance to go this year, keep looking. It'll probably I think you should do it every other year. No, I don't think so. Anyways, there's the doorbell, which means pizza from the dead is here. Oh, finally. So, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't find the house. You went to the wrong house. What do you want? Uh, you see, this is what happens when you employ dominoes. Mm. It's all right to give me a free pizza if they make make a mistake. 
How do you know if they've made a mistake? You don't. That's the problem. There you go. I didn't want pineapple. Oh, well. Shame on you. Hey, oh, that's the subject for next week's show. Should pineapple be put on pizza? Hmm, interesting. Mm. That's caused some controversy. I'm sure it has. Anyway, so we should have an area. We should storm something if we can't. Let's storm Eastern State Penitentiary. Yeah, it's been done. Yeah, I know. That's kind of sad. Can we storm something? Can you think of anything good to storm? Uh, 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 the Coast Guard defending Fort Constitution. Um, it's got to be defended by the military. Yeah, but it's it's got to be something cool. Hang on. Pease Air Force Base has got a mili- uh, it's got a UFO association to it. Nah, that's not fun. I want to storm something cool. Yeah, but you don't want to travel too far. Oh, I don't care. Oh, okay. Can cool. we storm the pyramids? Can we do that? been done oh storm rock mass oh yeah it's all water how can we storm water you know somebody actually suggested that but it never materialized (laughs) no seriously that was a viable suggestion somebody suggested that they were going to storm rock mass somebody once said i thought i saw a ghost but it never materialized Mm. Mm. anyway we gotta go that's really good yeah yeah all right, bye. So, anyways, you're listening. You have been listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Pass and Ron Kolick right here on Tojinet and Pararex Radio, brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 386 Mirac Street in Matuin, Massachusetts, and the Gallant Missia Family Law Group on High Street in North Andover, Massachusetts. Till next week, good night and God bless. Bye bye. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.